Hello, and welcome to the On Time Autism Intervention Podcast, a podcast for parents of children three and younger, dedicated to providing accurate information about autism, autism intervention, and guidance for your new path. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Washington's On-Time Autism Intervention, or OTAI. We're a collaborative project led by the UW's Autism Center and Herring Center for Inclusive Education. Our work is supported by the Seattle Foundation and aims to increase equitable access to timely diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder and evidence-based intervention for young children and their families. We are so glad you're here. All right. Welcome back to the on-time autism intervention podcast. Hi, Jess. Hey, Ashley. Today we are going to be talking all about sleep and I'm so excited. We're just going to get straight to it today. We have Anna Estes. She is a clinical psychologist and the director of the university of Washington autism center. And she is here to answer our questions all about sleep. Yay. It's our questions, not our listeners questions, but hopefully we well represent them. I am super excited um, Ashley to have Annette here because we have been talking with Annette for, and I'm just going to call her Annette instead of Dr. Dr. Annette, um, because we've been talking about sleep with her for a long time and, um, she just, she knows a lot about it. And I think our listeners are going to be excited to, to have her impart some of this important information. So let's go. Um, welcome to the show, Annette. Hey, thank you for having me. Well, let's go with our questions. Um, you know, this, this podcast is focused on children under three. And so we really want to know, uh, is there an amount of sleep that, that parents should expect of their two to three-year-olds? So I know, especially a lot of first-time parents think that sleeping through the night, is, that not sleeping through the night is par for the course, that every little person is not going to sleep through the night. But can you give us a sense of what parents should be aiming for and when they should start to think that perhaps their child isn't sleeping enough beyond number or hours? Are there other signs of problematic sleep? Yeah, I this is such a great question. I, I think one of the most important things parents can do is know what the goals are for their children's sleep. I, I know I personally remember being a first time parent and I'm a child psychologist and Yet, I had no idea what my child's sleep needs were, even like what kind of schedule to provide, none of that. Um, no one ever taught me about that. So um, I'm just really happy you asked that. Um, and yeah, so there are guidelines. The National Sleep Foundation is one of the places that I always go to get my information. And um, there's different ages or different amounts of sleep that you aim for depending on the age of your child. And these are always ranges because, you know, you probably know from your own life that some people get by, they seem to get by with a little less sleep. Some people really need more sleep. Kids are the same way, but um, yeah. So the quick answer is from one to two years of age, you need 11 to 14 hours, that includes daytime sleep or naps. From three to five, kids need 10 to 13 hours, that can include naps. But I mean, the real trick is that as everyone who's had a baby knows, sleep needs change so quickly in that first couple of years of life. So it's not as simple as it sounds. No, it's not that simple, but that's helpful. 11 to 14 hours is, is really a lot of sleep. So like half of the day, 
you know, uh, mm-hmm. the child should be sleeping. And so probably if you were getting less than that, and like, especially if we're getting drastically less than that, then that's, that's the time to start to think about, Hmm, maybe, maybe this isn't just sort of like usual, you know, infant sleeplessness, but, but we're moving into something that we need to get some, some, some help with. Is that what you're thinking? Well, yeah. And I think even before that, just starting to real to really nailing down like how old is my kid and how how much sleep do they need mm-hmm. and figuring out if you're providing that opportunity to your child. So the first thing is making and and doing it at a regular time each day. So providing it not just at different times but at the same time at night and the same time during the day. And once you're doing that and the, your child still is having a really hard time, then you can start maybe going deeper, but really starting with knowing what the target is. Mm-hmm. And this can be so like, correct me if I'm wrong, but this can be so challenging too, because as you mentioned, sleep needs change over time. So I remember my kids were both really early to drop their naps. Um, and if they slept during the day for even 20 minutes, they would be up for an extra hour and a half to two hours past their normal bedtime. So that kind of whole amount of sleep that we were aiming for was really compromised with any type of daytime sleep. So our goal was don't let them sleep during the day because then they'll fall asleep on time at nighttime. Oh my gosh. Well, let's talk about naps because that is one of the most confusing things. So when babies come into this world, their first few months of life, they just sort of sleep, wake, sleep, wake at rotating times all the time. And over time, there's this process called sleep consolidation, where children start to get more and more of their sleep at night. But at first, they're still getting quite a bit of their sleep during the day. So you start off with three naps a day, then you drop one nap and it's two naps a day, then you drop another nap and then it's one nap a day, and then you drop that nap. But the ages at which these things happen are different for a lot of kids. and that awkward phase of when you're dropping a nap and you still need the sleep and you haven't quite adjusted at night. I mean, there are some rough days and weeks, even for the best sleeper. Oh yeah. That, <laughs> that brings back memories. And, and, and it's certainly I've heard a lot of stories about, about how rough that can be when, when naps, especially that last nap, you know, do we still need that nap? Should we drop the nap? You know, um, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. So like at 12 months of age, kids are usually getting two naps a day. Mm-hmm. And then by three, most kids are taking one afternoon nap. Um, and then sometime between three and five, they drop that afternoon nap. And um, yeah, so that is, that is a confusing thing to, for me. Is there much you can do? So, so, so again, thinking about how hard it is for that last nap to drop is, 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 do you know, is there anything that, that a parent can do to like prolong the napping period so that it lasts, that it's more towards five as opposed to three, or is it just the child's natural sleep rhythm? And there's not much as a parent you can do to sort of keep them napping, you know? That's a good question. I know. I mean, if, if I, I feel like if parental willpower had anything to do with it, that would be really helpful. But I think a lot of this is a dance that the parent does by understanding and figuring out what their child's sleep needs are, and then creating an environment that supports it. So, you know, 
how do you figure out how much sleep your kid needs, right? Well, part of it is these guidelines. We already talked about that, but the next part you're kind of leading us to here is the parent figuring out what your child says they need in their behavior, right? So um, you, these, even the guidelines are really pretty wide. So, you know, does your kid look spaced out? Are they like rubbing their eyes? Are they yawning during the day? Um, you know, those are kind of signs that maybe they need more sleep. There's also things that you might not think about, like um, does your kid need an alarm clock or a parent to wake them up or do they kind of pop out of bed on their own? Hmm. Um, it's actually a good sign if they wake up on their own without having a lot of grogginess and that kind of thing. That makes a lot of sense. Well, can we ask what, what is the most common sleep issue that comes up for parents of children with autism under three, would you say? Yeah. I mean, I would say the most common thing is for kids to take a really long time to fall asleep, even if they seem tired, even if they're put down to, to bed. Um, also waking up in, at night, sometimes a lot in of the middle of the night, like middle of the night waking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then having a hard time going back to sleep and then waking up too early in the morning. And those are all things that kind of fall under the, the umbrella of insomnia. Mm -hmm. okay. Are there any common things that parents can do to start helping their child sleep better? Yeah. I mean, I think you already know part of my answer because I'm really big on parents making a schedule that provides the opportunity for their kid to get enough sleep and sticking to that schedule. Um, you know, so what I mean by opportunity, I mean, you know, you kind of start when you want your kid to wake up. You think, okay, every morning we have to get out of the bed or out of the house by seven most mornings. So seven is the wake up. And then you count backwards to figure out how much sleep they're going to need. And then you try to stick with that bedtime and wake time, even on weekends, even if they don't get to sleep for a while for, you know, if they're having a hard time falling asleep, you still wake up. And then over time, I think it, um, most people, most kids will start to get with that program. Um, the, there is another thing I would say too, is that to setting a bedtime routine about a half an hour before that bedtime that helps your kid wind down. Mm -hmm. um, so these are, you know, the classic relaxing activities like putting on your pajamas, brushing your teeth, reading a book, that kind of thing. Um, kind of like low stimulation things, things that like kind of just mellow us out. And and I know I do want to put a the ping in here about the idea of screens, you know, I, I don't talk much about screens here, but I'm, I'm pretty um, opposed to using, having much screen time for kids under three, but certainly, you know, in the hours before bedtime, we really want to minimize um, mm -hmm. any kind of screen time because that's pretty stimulating, right? That's exactly right. And it's actually even, it's stimulating, you, you know, emotionally, I guess, if you're doing something exciting, but also it has impact on um, chemicals that are released in your brain. So if you're um, exposed to screens in that hour or two before you intend to go to sleep, it suppresses melatonin, which is needed to, it's part of the process um, that, you know, people need to go to sleep. So it's a really good idea to 
-hmm. get in the habit of not having screen time before bed. For little ones, but really for anybody. And it's really all of us right. hate to break it. It's, right. I'm, it's really hard not to do it, but it is, it is so disruptive true. to sleep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that bedtime routine is helping kind of signal to your child too this transition is coming and probably is signaling, you know, kind of to your brain, this is time to be winding down. Sleep is coming. Mm -hmm. um, so it's all part of that. I know that transitions can be hard and maybe part of our, what we're communicating here is a lot of preparation for this transition. Yeah. The right amount of preparation. So we don't need to do it for an hour, but a half an hour is great, you know? Um, and I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, it's also really helpful to have that routine, the same, doing the same calming things in the same order every night for kids who are minimally verbal or who haven't, um, you know, don't really cue in as well to language it's really helpful to have that sequence of events. Some parents like to have um, visual um, kind of pictures that show the sequence of events. Um, I think that that can help some kids. It certainly helps some, some parents too, who maybe aren't naturally really um, sequential people to, to remember. I like that. And that's helpful too, because I think one of the things sometimes when we talk about having a schedule or having a routine, um, that's really important to note is that it takes time to build that routine too. And so consistency and practice and kind of committing to, this is what our bedtime routine is going to look like. The first time you have that bedtime routine, it's not going to signal to your child that it's bedtime that, you know, it's probably not, it's going to take some time and practice. And so sometimes those visuals, like you said, can be helpful to the parent because it helps them stick to the routine. I love that. I want to just put one little plug in here, just in, in, in working with families of children with autism, you know, we know that many times, um, children can, can really like routine and can, can really want to adhere very strictly to certain routines. So I do want to just say that it is important to have their be build in a little bit of flexibility so that it's not like we have to read this specific book and it has to be this specific parent. This is also an opportunity to build a routine, but have some flexibility in the routines that we're not, um, you know, creating a situation that, that when mom's not available, isn't, isn't feasible. So, so a little bit of flexibility in the routine, I think is, is really helpful for children. Oh, thank you for bringing that up. Cause you know, it's, it's back to that dance and knowing mm -hmm. your child mm -hmm. and, um, figuring out, yeah, how to help their body kind of get in that rhythm um as but not so rigid you're totally right Jess that yeah. it's such a um an important thing to to think about that's great so we've talked a little bit about the schedule making sure that they have enough opportunity and a bedtime routine is there anything once a child is in bed that parents can do mm, yes my favorite phrase for after the in the routine is over and your child's in bed is keep it brief and boring. Brief and boring is the phrase to sort of embed in your mind because um, it's not, especially with our little kids, it's not that they're not going to need any comfort at night. They're not going to ever, you know, get out of bed again, but we just need to make sure that we don't inadvertently teach them that, you know, all sorts of fun things can happen at night. <laughs> and so you want to make sure that they're, um, you know, you're just kind of matter of fact 
oh, it's still bedtime, it's still night, time to get back in bed, you know, that kind of thing, and just really not have long um, engagements at mm -hmm. that time. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So you're not going in there and singing an extra song or anything like that. Just a brief and boring. I like that. That's easy to remember. It seems like it's kind of easy to, in the middle of the night because you're also jarred <laughs> awake to sort of be brief and boring. But it also is easy to like pull out all the stops and want to, want to do anything possible to to sort of get the child to to fall back asleep. So yeah, I think brief and boring um, makes a lot of sense as a mantra. Keep that in mind as a mantra as you're waking up in the middle of the night. Um, so Annette, if there was one thing that you wish that every parent experiencing sleep difficulties could know, what, what would that be? Hmm. That's a high, I, these one thing is very hard to choose, but you know, I, I guess it would be that um, even though it can seem like nothing you're doing helps, I think I want parents to know that they can make a giant difference in their kids' sleep. And it's a little bit of what Ashley was saying about, you know, sticking with it over time that the first time isn't going to be enough time to make something feel like a routine. Um, it's the same thing for all of these things. Um, and, and just one little tidbit, I, I think that research actually shows that parents putting strategies into place at home is the most effective way to improve kids' sleep hmm. um, more than medicine, more than, you know, all of the fancy things that we can do. Um, so I think, yeah, the one thing would be make a good plan and stick with it for the long term. I like that. I, when I, my second was having a hard time sleeping, I just had a calendar for myself, if this is helpful to anybody. And every morning I would just check off, okay, we did the plan last night. Mm -hmm. And just having that calendar helped me. It wasn't really any type of calendar. It was just like boxes, but I would just check off. I knew I needed to try this for 14 days. That was the goal I had set for myself. Um, and, and that was helpful to me just to see that progress and to kind of remind myself it wasn't, you know, this big 14 day chunk. If I just broke it up and did it, I'm just going to do it today. Today is what I'm going to do. Um, I think the, the other piece is, is making sure everybody's on board, all caregivers, both parents or whoever is going to be responsible for putting child to bed. It, it can definitely be a big setback if, if there's a couple of days where, where one parent is plugging along and sticking to the plan. And then the other parent unbeknownst to them, you know, steps in and, and does things differently. So just making sure to set aside some time to talk about the plan and get and agree about the plan um, so that everybody is adhering to the plan. Cause that can make it harder. I think if, mm -hmm. if all of a sudden things change, you know, change depending on who's, who's doing, who's right. doing the bedtime routine. So. Yeah. And, you know, I think the other additional thing to that is um, we know that, first of all, we already talked about how kids sleep needs change over sometimes really rapidly over every month, it seems like, but certainly year to year. Um, and so we're changing to keep up with that. But then there's also illnesses, vacations, um, you know, as they get older, going to other people's houses to sleep. And so just knowing that every time something like that happens, it might be necessary to kind of go back to basics and reestablish um, the sleep patterns again. And it doesn't mean that all is lost, but um, you know, it is, yes. it isn't sort of a one and done 
And sometimes I imagine with kids with autism, that can be harder because they may not understand the change or that, you know, it may, it may take them a little, a little longer to, to sort of, I don't know if it's recover, but, but, you know, from, from whatever the big disruption of the big difference was. So just know that it's completely understandable if it, if it, if, if the setback takes a while to recover from. Um, yeah, that's so helpful and important. I feel like people don't share that information enough. So I, that is really helpful. Thanks for, for sharing that. So what advice do you have for parents who feel like they've tried everything that you've mentioned today, or perhaps they go try these strategies and their child's still having difficulty sleeping? Is there a next step? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, definitely doing this kind of thing on your own can be really hard and, um, it can be hard if, your maybe peer group is not um, having such a challenge um, as you are. I know that was my case with one of my kids and I just, you know, had to go first to books, which helped me understand the target um, that I was going for. But then I think, you know, to realize who else can be part of your team. And one of the really important team members is your child's pediatrician um, as with sleep. You know, you might not think that a pediatrician would be involved, but actually they can help figure out if your child might need a medical sleep assessment to see if there's any medical um, contributors to their sleep problems or any approaches that um, could help. So like if your child snores or grinds their teeth like that, those are important things to bring up. Or if they're really restless while they're sleeping, there could be sort of a, an iron deficiency behind that. Um, you know, so remember, you know, to kind of pull people in, um, if you are working with a BCBA or even an SLP, there are a lot of early childhood educators. A lot of people actually have uh, encountered this quite a bit before and might have some, some tricks up their sleeve. That's um, a good idea. Just kind yeah. of remembering that this is an important issue and just, just even if if, if it doesn't come up in conversation with your pediatrician, they don't ask you about it, you know, remembering to, to highlight that this is something that's going on. Um, cause it is really, really important. And I, and I love, um, that you, you know, talked about snoring. I think, I think probably if you're going to about to go see your pediatrician, it's a great idea to collect a little bit of data so that you can really say, you know, um, yeah, so that you you have some some information with for them to kind of hit the ground running with, and there are actually kind of cool apps on most phones that you can get now that actually are like little meters that you can put put in your child's room to to see if they snore and how loud they snore and stuff like that, because that will be something that that the pediatrician might be curious about. Um, I can say my youngest was a snorer, was a terrible sleeper. He had his tonsils out and I had recorded a video of him snoring and I played it for about three seconds to my pediatrician and she was like, turn it off, turn it off. I'm referring you to ENT. So, um, and his sleep did improve after he just couldn't breathe very well at night. Um, so his sleep definitely improved after that, but that was definitely after trying all of the, um, the routines. We had opportunities for sleep, consistent, very consistent bedtime routine. Um, so 
Yeah. That, that. So it's pretty typical for husbands to snore, but, but maybe not for children. <laughs> well, you can also talk to your doctor if you are your spouse. Um, that's, you know, not good for anybody, no, but, true. but yeah, we're talking about the little guys here and it's kind of funny because you don't think about it with little kids, but it's true. Well, it's super cute. I mean, I don't know. I, I really think that a snoring child is very, it's very cute unless you're trying to sleep next to them then it's probably not that cute but it's right. sort of cute it sort of like makes them like a little old man oh. to me <laughs> well this has been really um enlightening and i think our listeners are going to be excited to hear about it and um we thank you for taking the time annette to to be here to share with us sure thing that thank was really you. fun i hope it helps some people get a good night's sleep and we will put in the show notes some book recommendations. I think that's a great idea to have some books um, that we can refer families to as, as sort of first steps. So we will do that. But it's time for us to go. So we will see you. I'll see you next time, Ashley. See you next time. And Annette, thank you for your time today. I had a good time. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. All right. Welcome back, everybody. We had so much fun during this episode that we kept talking after the recording ended and realized that there was one additional element that we wanted to add um, before we actually let you go today. So Annette, can you share with us what we were talking about? Yeah, we were just talking about the another really important consideration for sleep. And that has to do with what you're doing during the daytime. So a little bit unexpected. You might not think that your daytime um, activities really affect sleep that much, but it really does make a huge difference for kids to be getting exercise and activity during the day, not in the evening, not so close to bedtime, but during the day is the best. And getting outside and getting sun morning till noon in, in that era of time is really useful to get your circadian rhythms aligned. And it actually really helps some kids sleep. Um, The thing that made me think about it was talking to a parent recently reminded me of how some parents find swimming in particular really, really helpful for their kids sleep. And they, parents um, in a group that I was doing started talking about the difference when their kid was in a sleep, or I'm sorry, in a swimming class and um, when they compared to when they weren't. So you know, playing around with that exercise during the day and seeing if that can help is a really uh, important thing for a lot of kids. And for those of us in the Northwest, I know we have listeners from all over the country and the world, but for those of us in the Northwest who don't have sunshine a lot of times, um, even though ideally we're out in the sunshine, you know, it's, it's okay to be in an indoor gym or um, you know, I think the idea is, is the exercise piece of it and just getting, um, getting, yeah. But also light. It is, it is okay. Sun may be overstating yeah. it for us about nine months out of the year, but even that filtered light through the mm-hmm. clouds is really important to have that, um, kind of outdoor time is another. So put piece. our raincoats on, put your raincoats on, <laughs> yep. put your boots on and try, try if you can to get out and, and and get some exercise. That's great. All right. I'm glad we added that. Thank you so much, Annette. Thank you for the extra time. (laughs) All right. Goodbye.
This podcast represents the opinions of Drs. Ashley Penny and Jessica Greenson and our guests on the show. The content here should not be taken as clinical or medical advice and is for information purposes only. Because each child is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional with any specific questions. Views and opinions expressed on the podcast are our own. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we're sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast, and in no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a doctor-patient relationship. Thank you.